Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... (laughs) These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. (laughs) Hello there, Mark Kenny here with this week's Feast of Plant-Based Meat Chat. Corona, corona, corona. Suddenly there's not much room or appetite, frankly, for anything else. That's the nature of emergencies, I guess, and make no mistake, that's what this is. And isn't it great to know that the people who are in charge are so brilliant, so prescient, A few weeks back, Donald Trump, easily the most unqualified president his country has ever thrown up, was characterising it as a bit of a hoax. And less than a week ago, Scott Morrison, who never ever criticises Trump, no matter how absurd his behaviour, was simultaneously planning an effective ban on large gatherings, yet for some reason remained defiantly intent on going to the football himself. And just like he sacked his former sports minister over a technicality rather than the substance of running a corrupted grants program, Mr Morrison backed out of his weekend footy match at the last minute, not because it was wrong, but because his attendance would be, quote, misrepresented. On balance, the Morrison government has been better than most, it must be said, but noticeably reluctant on some measures. If, as the ABC's Norman Swan says... The situation we now face is because of decisions taken two weeks ago. Then decisions taken now are to avoid exponential increases in infection rates that might show up in a couple of weeks' time. In other words, staying on top of this means always being ahead of the curve, always appearing to be overreacting. Let's bring in our panel. Political scientist Dr Maria Taflaga from the School of Politics and International Relations is here as always. How are you, Maria? I'm well, and I'm delighted that we're in this far larger studio. It's 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 much bigger. It's back to the a palace. Yes, yeah, so it I, is. I, I hope we keep this forever, Martin. Well, we normally uh, we, we we normally make some reference to our tiny studio, which is uh, a cupboard. But as a result of this corona uh, virus and all of the changes that are being made, and this must be said to be one of the smaller changes, I guess, smaller disruptions to the economy. But uh, we have actually moved into a larger area so that we can observe. What are we calling? Social distancing. Social distancing, that's right, or not spitting on each other. Not or, yet. Or exchanging uh, other uh, vapours. Uh, so, yes, that is something of, a, of an advance. 
Professor Quentin Grafton is a professor of economics here at the ANU. Welcome back, Quentin. Thanks very much, Mark. Very, uh, very pleased to be here. I wish it were under better circumstances. Yes, it's certainly a difficult circumstance, uh, and it has both health and economic implications, and will and, and and obviously social ones as well. And we'll we'll certainly get to that. And Dr. David Caldercott. Uh, he is an emergency consultant in the emergency department at Calvary. He's a senior lecturer in the College of Health and Medicine here at the ANU, uh, an advocate of uh, harm reduction measures. And welcome to you, David. Oh, delighted to be here. I can't believe how big this place is. <laughs> Voluminous. That's yeah. right. So let's go to what I was just saying. You know, it's the uh, it's the the issue of the day. It's the issue of the year. The coronavirus and how we're responding to it. Uh, do you have any general observations, David, to make about um, uh, the way the government is performing? Look, I think in general terms, uh, this is something completely new. Uh, it's something completely new, uh, not just for the planet, but particularly for the Australian government. And I think they're still finding their straps at the moment. Um, there are we're not evolving this in a in a vacuum. There are good things happening globally, and we should probably move away from the best Olympics ever type vibe that's being pushed yeah. and, and pick up on what other countries are doing really well and start adopting best practice. And yeah, that, that's an interesting thing because one of the things that worries me about it is the lack of sort of global coordination. There, there is the WHO, the World Health Organization, part of the United Nations. Uh, it has it was slower to declare this a pandemic than was the Australian government and were, mm. were some other governments around the world. Um, there was concern, let's put it that way. Peter Hartcher and others have written about the, uh, the, the possibility that the Chinese were pressuring the WHO not to declare it a pandemic because of, you know, it was seen at that stage as being overwhelmingly located in China. Yeah. Right at the moment, there are more cases outside of China than there yeah. are in. But uh, nonetheless, um, if the WHO was being pressured like that, then I guess that's not a good thing for confidence in the in the integrity of that organisation. But, of course, Donald Trump, who has pretty much abandoned the idea of the US playing a global leadership role, has had his own issues and is never you know, never likely to take note of someone like the WHO or the, or the UN anyway. Yeah, I mean, you'd be interested in the politics, though, wouldn't you? Because, obviously, we had similar um, responses back in H1N1 and SARS and whatnot, but the world was a much more uh, collaborative place. And with the rise of populist leaders, I think that's going to have a real impact on whether – a, a worldwide or global response can even be mounted. Um, you have the EU pulling together, much easier now the Brits are out. Um, but um, it doesn't seem that the most uh, powerfully economic country in the world is going to buy into this at all. The, the Except that it's facing probably, uh, from what we can tell, a, a much more critical problem than most other countries because of how slow it's been. Oh, absolutely, no doubt. In fact, the US is now the, the largest point of um, COVID export in the world at the moment, despite all the, the rhetoric that's coming out of the White House. Maria, what do you think about you know the, the British situation, the, 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 the policy response uh, that's being adopted by the Johnson, Boris Johnson's government is using this term herd immunity. Um, it's, it's talking about, it's, it's acting as if the situation has got to such a point that it's better off insulating, um, you know, sort of effectively quarantining about a third of the community that is in those risk categories, you know, the aged and and people with with underlying health conditions and the like, and allowing the rest to contract the disease, 
uh, David used the term populist governments, and some people would say that certainly within the, uh, you know, the Conservative Party that that there are populist elements about the way Boris Johnson has has uh, emerged as a as a political phenomenon as a as an election winning uh, prime minister. It's not a very popular idea, though, is it, to let people get infected? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think it is a popular idea. And, and I guess before I would comment on the on the politics of that, I actually would like to ask David: Can can you actually explain? Because I don't really fully understand sure. the logic behind what they want to do. So, can you tell so us what they want to do? For starters, then... there's very little logic behind what they want to do. Herding is a uh, a term that we use for an immunized population. So, um, when you have a disease that is very dangerous um, and the uh, immunization schedule decides that, you know, this is something that we really should immunize against. The population builds up a herd immunity and that stops things getting a foothold within the community. But it, it's a discussion that refers exclusively to a, uh, an immunized population. The equivalent of what is being suggested in the UK is imagine we had a bush, bushfire in any given, um, uh, jurisdiction or neighborhood. It's the equivalent of ensuring that your elderly neighbor's house got burnt down just so it could provide a fire break for you. Um, we don't know uh, what the immunity from um, COVID-19 is. There's already a couple of cases now of reinfection being reported out of Japan. So the idea that we could get a herd immunity that would last any meaningful time is, of course, ludicrous. Um, but what we know for certain is that we will be dealing with enormous, if we don't do something to flatten this curve, we will be dealing with enormous numbers, not only of people putting pressure on the uh, healthcare system, but probably dying. Uh, so there is nobody who understands epidemiology or immunology or any aspect of infection control that thinks that herding is a good idea anywhere that I've been able to find. So, I mean, as I understand it, the the rationale for doing this is to avoid, a, like, you know, you don't want to shut things down too early in the infection curve, if that's the right terminology, to avoid like a second wave. And they want to, they want to have the peak of the infection in summer, in the British summer. Um, I mean, is there is there any kind of basis to that? Well, it depends, I, and I think part of the problem in this space is the. Uh, debate about whether these issues are something to do with medicine or something to do with economics. And what's coming out of the UK at the moment is that a predominant concern in the UK is that some of the measures that might be required for an approach other than hurting could cost the UK a G their sort of 3% hit on their GDP. Um, so hurting is being used as an excuse for not putting the money in to do what needs to be done to avoid the spread. This business of it won't be as bad um, if the weather gets better, we know nothing about that. I think we can assume that it'll probably be awful in Australia because we're got, we'll have a concomitant flu season. Mm -hmm. um, so m maybe they'll do better because they won't have the flu, but it's not a reason to advocate for hurting. I, I mean, I guess to answer yeah, your question, Mark, about the, the sort of political um, dimensions of this is that, I mean, as, as a, you know, as a, as a regular citizen observing this, it's actually really hard for us as regular citizens to develop a criteria for what a good response looks like. I mean, we all kind of know what bushfires look like in this mm. country. We know what floods look like in this country. And I think as citizens, we can make good judgments about whether or not we think government is responding reasonably, unreasonably, or, or, or quickly. But given we've never faced this kind of public health crisis in this country, it's, it is difficult to determine what does look good. And 
I mean, I understand that governments have to weigh up more than just the sort of health dimensions. They're sort of weighing that up against this economic um, criterion. But, you know, I guess, David, what you've just sort of said is actually quite terrifying to me. I think the other thing that is in this space is actually quite an unusual disease. Uh, so I think, um, you know, for the majority of people, they're going to have a really bad flu and that'll be it. And so people understand that. That's what the dialogue is like. And, and I think the big problem arises when people start to try to think about exponentials and people start uh, – don't consider what might happen to the frail and the follow-on effect that that will have on healthcare. So people are still thinking about COVID-19 as what its effect will be on their immediate family, whereas the real impact and some of the economic uh, impact is going to be on the effect on the healthcare system. And that's quite new for a, an infectious disease. That's quite unusual. This capacity of the healthcare system to cope, this is what's, I suppose, one of the key things, uh, key drivers of this idea of um, managing the, uh, you know, flattening the curve is the, is the term that gets used, but managing the demand on the system so that it just doesn't get overwhelmed at any particular point. Absolutely, Mark. And we know what happens in healthcare systems that do get overwhelmed, you know, whether it's in China when the infection got underway or it's in Italy at the moment. Basically, they do triaging, and of course, and that means a bunch of people uh, don't get treated in a variety yeah, of ways. Yeah, or get very substandard but, but, care. But even more importantly, for those people who don't end up with the virus, there's people who are, you know, uh, have uh, problems in terms of their immune system, people who need to have heart surgery, people having uh, chemotherapy. Those sorts of people miss out too. So yeah. it's, it's not, so even the people who don't get sick from COVID-19, they miss out because those beds are full up and the doctors mm. are full up 24-7. So this is the whole point, of course, as you're saying, Mark, is to bring those numbers down in terms of that initial peak, allow them to go over a period of time where we can keep more time to prepare, of course. I don't think we've used our time here in Australia effectively. Okay, but more time to prepare, more time to allow those uh, uh, levels of infection to be lower than what they would be in peak, and therefore provide some sort of assistance for the for the healthcare system. And of course, there's a whole set of issues. We talked about the politics of this. Politicians make political decisions. We get that. But when it comes to a national emergency, and I make this very clear, when it comes to a national emergency, we expect more than just a politician making a political decision. We expect a national leadership to look after the population and do so in a way that's reasonable, sensible, but also precautionary. And I think that's point of precautionary is the way we need to think about this. Let's not panic, but let's be precautionary. And we don't have to look at some models. We actually can look at actual places in the world. We know what China did. Interesting point. We yeah. knew what they did with social distancing. We know what uh, Singapore has done. We know what Taiwan has done, Hong Kong has done, and we know what Italy did. Mm. Okay, we know what's happening right now in Spain. So we can see that. We're actually behind France, Spain, and Italy. So what does that tell us? It immediately tells us we take a precautionary approach and we immediately, as in today, the 16th of March, in, uh, implement the appropriate social distancing. I work at a university. This university, for mm. example, should mm. stop having in-person classes immediately. 
I mean, that's you know, that's my take on it, but it goes mm. well beyond that. Uh, another university has already done that, or, or possibly more than one at this point. So that's the. It's going to make it very hard for the government or state governments not to close schools if universities make those decisions, isn't it? Well, it's a it's a sequence. Well, maybe they should make it's that. A, well, sure, but it's a sequenced approach. What are, you know, it's a risk benefit trade off. So yeah. what are the risks and what are the benefits? Okay, so cabinet meeting and having a discussion about this national emergency. Well, I think it's worthwhile. They actually do meet. <laughs> I yeah. think. That makes sense. There's a risk-benefit trade-off. Well, actually, there's a risk, but yes, there's a big benefit if they get the right decisions. In terms of students coming to class, at least at a university level, these people are adults. They care for themselves. They're not being cared by anybody. So it makes sense for me, from my perspective, that they don't come to class and they get taught in a virtual way or classes get postponed for a week or whatever. That, it, that to me, is a so that was, an, that was a pretty easy decision to yeah. make about the discretionary side of yes. university activities, which has already happened. Uh, you know, the public lectures, public events that all universities, mm. and particularly this one, ANU, very integrated with the community. We have lots of events here. Mm. That decision's already been taken. So I suppose that was a, a pretty easy consideration on the risk-benefit analysis that you talk about. You could, you know, bringing people in. It's not a core function of teaching at the university, and therefore you could stop doing it. You're saying uh, there's a case now on the basis of everything we know that that risk equation is is now such that we shouldn't even have classes? In my view, no, we should not have in-person classes. We should obviously be delivering classes in other ways, but that would make sense to me. And I think ultimately well, we're going to come to that point. This is happening all over the world. This is, mm. this we're is, we're all being asked to online classes. Do we come to this uh, next week? Or do we come to it the week after next? Or do we do it now? If we do it now, it's just as, as David was saying, we've got exponential growth here, okay? So at the moment, it's doubling every six days the number of cases in Australia. Oh, it's faster than that. Oh, faster so than that. So the speculation has been that it's four, but the World Health Organization data from uh, March 15 is that it's a three-day doubling, well, which brings us to 160,000 cases by Easter. Well, there you are. So, so in, in Australia, it's yeah. 160,000 cases in the world at the moment. Yeah. And so, so, wow. so if it's a three-day doubling, that's what it brings to with with no uh, mitigation. It yeah, would bring right. us to so that so we look very closely at what the doubling time is. If it was only four days, it would be only forty thousand. So it makes a huge difference what we can do to ram down that doubling time. Let's and, go to this. And, excuse me. And the yeah, other thing about it is not just the the, the doubling time; yeah. it's also the base. Mm. Okay, so if you start off a lower base, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. So if you do social distancing on Monday, March sixteenth, for example, whatever the this is broadcast yeah. um, immediately, then 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 it's going to make a big difference than if you wait a few days. Yes, okay. and I suppose that was Norman mm. Swan's point that I referred to at the yes. start that. Uh, you know, it's a bit like looking at a star. When you look at a star, the light of that star has travelled over a long period of time to get there. So you're looking back in time. And yeah. to some extent, we've got governments making decisions, the positive impact of which the, you know, the immediate, uh, financial or economic or political costs might, uh, might be uh, considerable. But the health benefits of that may not be immediately apparent, but we have to constantly be ahead of that curve mm. in order to, um, not go down this path and, and find ourselves in this kind of exponential growth phase we can't manage. Yeah. So what are governments frightened of here? Because, uh, you know, normally in a financial crisis, you can understand governments not wanting to add to fear, right? Because fear is the problem mm -hmm. in a sense in the market itself. If we think back to the GFC, the stimulus package was about propping up industries, but it was actually mostly about firing confidence in consumers, in financial institutions, in businesses to retain people employed and so forth. 
What we're dealing with here is a health crisis mm-hmm. which has very, very significant economic implications, perhaps more significant than the GFC. I think that's starting to become clear. But it's not about, um, if, from government's point of view, they need to get on top of the material cause of this, right? They need mm-hmm. to be responding. Now, it seems to me there's been a sort of a reluctance to separate these two crises in that way and that governments are a little bit scared. I mean, this might be behind Morrison's thinking about um, saying we're going to stop gatherings of more than 500 people, a number mm. which is pretty arbitrary, let's be honest. Mm. We're going to stop gatherings of more than 500 people. But in the meantime, but in the two days before we actually bring that in, I'm going to the footy and you should too. Yeah. That was, you know, That's what he was saying. It seemed like the policy had one intent and the rhetoric – had a different and completely contrary intent, and it was, it's. I think it derives from, from ministers, from the prime minister down, having this concern about panic and having this concern about um, not wanting to dampen activity. When in fact, dampening activity, I'm afraid, is a function of social distancing. It's something that needs to happen. Mm. And uh, you know, so what if they seem to overreact? If they overreact, and we don't go down this horrible path that we're all talking about going down, isn't that a success for the policy? I think what it reflects is a a loss of the ability of our political class to actually talk in complex terms, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is this is not necessarily just a problem of, of one side of politics, but it actually sort of explains what the phenomena you just sort of had there, right, where they've clearly got these economic goals, which are around maintaining confidence in the economy, and they're trying to weigh that up against these epidemi- e- public health, that's all that I can pronounce. <laughs> Epidemiology. Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, uh, concerns about trying to manage this stuff. And this, this, this problem with this inability to talk about complexity, I think, actually highlights the other two kinds of problems that we've seen. Yeah. One is like, there's like a lack of transparency around decision making happening at governmental levels in an age of an ocean of too much information, mm. information coming from overseas, people not necessarily being able to kind of understand like what is happening in the United States is not exactly where Australia is up to and the implications of that. And I think th- th- this criticism was made of, of the government on um, – insiders yesterday, and I think it's actually a really valid one, it's just that the government hasn't set up a framework in which to deliver information to the Australian people. And, I, you know, broadly speaking, that should involve something with an endpoint, right? And then, and then an assurance that they're going to explain their reasons. And so to build trust, that people will know that they will be told when to do things so they stop panic buying toilet paper and, and, and food. The, the second one is, why isn't this bipartisan? Mm. Why isn't the... Well, it, well, it broadly is. Uh, well, why isn't... Why isn't... I mean, they called it a wartime cabinet. Why isn't the opposition in this cabinet? It's, to me, it seems a little disconcerting that Labor is basically holding press conferences, raising legitimate kind of points, like... In wartime, in wartime, usually parties kind of coordinate more. Like I, th- I find that, and that goes to Quentin's point yeah. about really getting on top of this and acting in the national interest rather Precisely. than the normal rubric of, Precisely. of politics. You know, yeah, the, the, the switch has to be flicked. Yeah. Okay. So the politicians, and I'm not pointing right, left, whatever, they need to flick that switch and say, we've got a national emergency. We happen to be the national leadership, at least at a federal level here in Canberra, and we need to do something. And of course, it has to happen on the territory level and state level. That's the, that's the situation we're in. And it's not panicking. It's a question of providing information. Exactly. We need to know as Australians what's going on. We need to be regularly updated. We need to know the, the potential consequences. And I think we 
need to be upfront about that. And that justifies decisions. So if we start to lock down or shut schools or lock down communities, then people understand why that's happening. Or why we're not doing it. Well, that's the point. Well, we should be doing a range of things that we are not currently doing, but we will end up doing for sure. It's a certainty that's going to happen. So let's do it sooner. And of course, the only way people can come on board, because we don't live in a police state, is if people cooperate. They understand the the benefits of self-isolation, not just for themselves, but for others. That's what concerned me about Morrison's messaging too. I hate to harp on about this, but it seemed to me that leadership would have involved saying, look, we're going to impose this ban. The reason we're imposing this ban is because we don't want all these people gathering together. That becomes an infection risk, right? And so I would, I mean, we don't want to police this any more than we have to. We want people to do this of their own volition. So I would encourage you, if you don't need to be at these events, do not go out, go to them. And what a better opportunity than at that point to say, I myself understand the sacrifice mm. and I'm not going to go to my beloved footy. If you look at what's going on overseas, um, you've got Trudeau self-isolating. These are good examples and make it real for people. And I think part of the problem in all of this is this, this morbid fear of losing face. I think, you know, yes. there's this sort of tough guy thing going on in Australian politics. And being tough as being like Angela Merkel, the way to approach this as an outsider, um, I've only just become Australian, so I'm only learning your ways. Um, but I would have thought the way to approach this is to be glum, you know, rather than to be cheerful and it's all going to be grand because it's so not all going to be grand. No. But, you know, pitch what is real, give advice that's practical. Yeah, and, and the reason why the general public is off like some sort of pet shelter dog buying toilet paper by the bale is because they're overly anxious. They have no idea what else to do. They feel the need to do something. We must purchase toilet paper. It's not even a gastrointestinal disease, for God's sake. It'd be far better sense to buy cling film or tissue paper or something. But, you know, people are buying this stuff because they haven't got any other information. Yes, it's an interesting point. Look, we're going to take a quick break and we'll continue with this discussion. Before we do, I'll make a public service announcement. We're sorry to say that uh, we've had to postpone the upcoming Policy Forum Pod live event. That was due to be held on the 24th of March. We'll look at rescheduling that once we're able to do so. Apologies to everyone who was looking forward to that. Keep an eye on policyforum.net slash events for further information or our social media channels, Apps Policy Forum, that's APPS Policy Forum on Twitter or Policy Forum Pod on Facebook. Back in a moment. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. 
Okay, welcome back. Now, Quentin, you're our resident economist here on the on the panel. What was your assessment of the, um, the the stimulus package that was announced last week? Bearing in mind how quickly you know events are are unfolding here, and the government's already looking to kind of backfill sections of it. We understand the Reserve Bank is also planning on Thursday this week, so probably not long after this podcast uh, is available, uh, the, the Reserve Bank will be looking at what looks to be another or well, a first round of quantitative 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 easing, uh, you know, effectively described as printing money or some such thing. But, I mean, some pretty drastic measures are being taken and probably more will be taken on the fiscal side, perhaps more on the monetary side as well. What was your assessment of of the scale of it? Is the government really rising to this? Well, I think in all fairness to the government, they did make the point that this was the beginning mm-hmm. and that further adjustments would be required and, and that's what's going to have to happen this weekend and in the weeks to come. So in terms of uh, there's what's called monetary policy, what the Reserve Bank tries to do in terms of reducing interest rates, so the cash rate will fall again, uh, presumably very shortly, mm. 0.25. And then as you say, at that point, where it's essentially at zero, where well, we already are, interest rates at that point, and then you have to do something different. Different. And this yeah. is this quantitative easing that the the Europeans, I think, were the ones, but also the Japanese have used for a number of years to to buy and stimulate. But that that really is 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 a third or fourth best option, really here, because really what we're talking about is fiscal policy, what the government actually does in terms of expenditures. And it seems to me the most obvious way to proceed, although it's extremely expensive. But the other alternative is also even more expensive, is that people need to be guaranteed their wages and salaries. Yeah. So in this situation, we've got to step in for the workers and the workers are the, also the households that are the consumers. And they need to have some sort of guarantee in the context of their um, their, their their incomes. Now, that that's uh, that's a big cost. You can, now, many of us would be in the category where we would say that that is the case already, but there'd be a lot of people a lot who of aren't pe- as well. A lot of people, uh, a lot of people on on. on Contracts, uh, you know, uh, those sorts of people, casual uh, uh, people in terms of their casual employment, they're about to lose their jobs. Yeah, and some okay. of them already have. I mean, there's so many events closing. Um, you well, know, a lot of people rely on that income. You, you bet. Uh, and then people in the uh, travel industry, people in the hospitality industry, you know, people in uh, in the, the the entertainment industry, all yeah. of those are going to be severely affected. So yes, you need particular packages for them, but you need an across the board package to make sure that people, when they're not at, uh, at work, and there'll be a lot of people who won't be at work, that they at least continue to, to be able to uh, 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 feel confident that the economy is, is working for them. So how many squajillion dollars is that? Oh, it's in the hundreds. Of billions? Of billions of dollars. Wow. Hundreds of billions over an extended period of time. Yeah. But the, the, you need to think about who bears these costs. So, so there's one estimate from John Quiggin at the University of Queensland that the cost of the bushfires are about $100 billion, possibly more. So who bear the cost? Well, the government didn't have a bill of $100 billion, but there's a bunch of people who bear a lot of costs associated with the bushfires in all sorts of ways. So I think what, I, what, I, what I'm arguing for is people are going to be bearing costs. That people who have uh, equity portfolios, for example, they've already borne those sort of sorts of costs. Mm. People who won't be able to get health treatment, they're going to bear that in all sorts of ways. So so what we want to make sure is those costs are shared in as much as we can in a way that is, uh, ensures that the poor and vulnerable in Australia are 
protected are not left mm. onto the onto the garbage heap. So that's what I'm suggesting is that's the sort of measure you've you've got to move in. Now you may you may not announce it for six months and say go. I'm not saying what I'm saying is don't say that it's going to be for six months, but you might want to do it on a staggered basis. Mm-hmm. So for the next so many weeks, etc., until we know more, this is what we're going to uh, ensure. And there are ways and means to provide that support. Obviously, businesses that can continue, they do have business activity statements. So you're not going to necessarily have to hand it all to every business, but you'll be able to make judgments in terms of their cash flows, et cetera. So there'll be a way of making sure that that the, the, to some extent that this won't be a, a big big fiddle by some people. But but certainly those industries, those sectors that are hurting, that are hurting right now, that they have the ability to continue to employ people. Uh, in other words, there's a guarantee by the government. To and keep that's that going to be really important wages. in terms of any recovery as well because mm-hmm. if, if you want the economy to rebound and, and there will be a lot of pent-up demand in the economy, won't there? I mean, you think of all the billions of decisions that we all take as individuals, the cumulative effect of all of those decisions Decisions not to do this or that, not to go there, not to take a holiday, not to travel, not to go to a restaurant, uh, you know, staying home, not buying this, not buying that. Uh, the whole depressing effect on the economy, right? But but when the time comes that we start coming out of this, you need the firms that exist now, those little companies, those, those small contractors and everything, they need to be still in existence in some way to capitalise on that demand, or else you don't get the kind of recovery that we could get from all that pent-up. Would it be fair to say that if if this goes on a long, long time, a, a population could learn how to become austere and not be inclined to spend money in the way that it did in a boom period? I don't know about that. Mm. I mean, I would expect a sharp Well, we've seen fee. it before mm. from the war, from the but Second I, World War. Well, I don't know. I mean, obviously, we've got a medical profession. government controls suppressing demand. <laughs> but to me, it's a sharp But v there was a frugality. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Frugal behaviour. Yeah. Or do you think they'll just party? They'll just go mad? You know, people will be ripping off their masks and their like clothes and drinking. Yeah, exactly. There, there might be more births in 2021 yeah. than we would have expected. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. This. yeah. Someone but, told me that and then sort of, you know, whatever it is, 12, 13 years later, that we'll have the, the generation of the quarantines, mm. as someone called it on Twitter. I saw. Oh, I like that. That's very nice. Yeah, well it's, done. But it, it, it's a really interesting uh, question, this one, about how, you know, how, how much assistance is going to be needed for the economy and where. Uh, I was talking to Fintan O'Toole, the Irish uh, columnist, earlier today, and you know, he was making the point that um, airlines, for example, uh, a lot of them are very marginal businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know, it's very hard to imagine airlines, all of them, surviving. And one outcome could be that governments have to take equity stakes in these airlines because the the, the impact, the economic impact of them crashing is, uh, you know, if you'll excuse the term, um, is uh, is devastating, of course. So, and if that happens, then, you know, what, what flows from that? I mean, governments are going to have to forget about the idea of surpluses for Oh, forget about surplus. Time. I mean, we, we're, we're moving into recession. I mean, this is, I can't, I, I'd be absolutely flabbergasted if we're not in a recession in the next few months. I mean, and this is going to be a global a global impact, mm-hmm. you know, with the U.S. economy. Of course, China's had its massive hit. Uh, it's coming out of it, but U.S. is it's just do, beginning. Do you, do you buy that China coming out of it thing? I mean, uh, well, it's coming out of it relative to where it was at. Yeah. So it, it's. I mean, if, again, look at look to David for the for the expertise on the medical side. But it, this is over many months. You know, I I would say that we will be in a recovery phase, perhaps, perhaps, uh, in, in so many months down the road. And of course, China came into this first, so China is going to be, I would imagine, come out of it sooner in that sense. But also Let's- remember that China has the cultural 
approach to provide draconian intervention that almost no other country mm. will tolerate. Yeah. And that may be part of the problem with Spain and Italy and indeed Australia. People yes. like to have fun. So I would not just that, but governments don't like to uh, you know to be seen to be overreacting. We were t- touching on that. They get thrown the break, out if they do. Yeah, that's right. So well, I think they're going to get thrown out by not reacting. Mm. Well, that's a very good point. I mean, because the the numbers are going to be written in 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 death toll. You know, it's 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 uh, not something you can avoid. What do you think, Maria? A democracy is actually sort of by their nature in a difficult position dealing with this. Uh, yeah, I think they don't have the quote unquote advantages of a totalitarian regime, or rather, a authoritarian state, regime, yeah. um, to impose strict control on people and uh, you know to resolve collective action problems by force. Um, but in terms of the political outcome, I, I think I think we really have no idea mm. what is going to happen. In political science, uh, I'm an institutionalist. We like to call this a, a critical juncture, right, which is basically a fancy way of saying a big shock to the system in which it sort of, I guess, throws up all the, uh, the options and um, usually sort of sets new policy paths. And we've got, you know, a, we had a weak economy, a recession now almost certainly coming, which even the government seems to think is coming, and this, um, this disease that we don't really know uh, or understand what it's going to do. Like the idea that it's not going to change the way we live is ludicrous, right? But it's a potential of, of how much, right? Um, you know, what will happen to jobs in this country? Will we lose a whole type or class of jobs? Mm. I don't, I don't, I don't know. But I think what is kind of fascinating is data coming out of the, the US in terms of how polarized that country is. Survey data suggesting that, and this is US data, I have to stress that, mm. um, showing that people who are inclined to vote for right wing, right wing parties, which is the Republicans, uh, take this disease less seriously than left leaning voters. Now, there's actually good reasons to suggest that this voting behavior pattern does not translate to other countries. Mm. Um, just because of the nature of polarization in the US, there might be all kinds of cross-cutting cleavages, as we like to call it, you know, people who um, are right-wing are probably more inclined to do things like shut down borders because they're concerned about diseases, whereas left-wing voters will be more concerned about the state of public health. So they're actually quite complicated and difficult to um, predict before anyone tweets at us about these differences. Well, there's some really interesting stuff now coming out of the States. There's that uh, interesting sheriff character um, who's got a million followers on uh, Twitter and is calling for everybody to go out in the streets and party. We will not have the government tell us what to do. Oh, my God. Um, I think that is going bring to Bring your guns. Yeah. I mean, you know. oh, oh, honestly, this is something that could turn into an episode of The Purge. Mm. Yeah, it's really quite extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the, the, this, this, I would not want to be in the U.S. right now. Um, and well, you wouldn't get back in here for starters. Well, yeah. not without self-isolating. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I guess what it what it goes to show is to, to link back to what I said about critical junctures that a lot of our assumptions about the world and our actual systems of government are and are about to be put under a tremendous amount of stress. Uh, and no doubt, just like the bushfires, this will raise questions about our, our understandings and orthodoxies about these and, importantly, where we're going to go in the future. And this doesn't necessarily mean it will be a, a, a positive thing. It may be negative. It's, mm. we, don't, we don't actually – no one knows. Do you think that there's uh, any 
among those changes could be that what we're actually seeing is the sort of limits in the real world of the kind of minimalist state. You know, so in other words, the kind of neoliberal agenda of privatizations, of small government, of, of having market-based decision-making and so forth, which has been in vogue now for so long. But we come up against this and we find we've got a health system that is essentially running at capacity for normal operations and has no surge capacity for this. And there's no particular mechanisms for rapidly ratcheting it up. So that's one of the changes that could come out of it that uh, we would want, uh, that, that people are going to want more investment in critical infrastructure, more investment in better health systems, better education systems and the like, rather than uh, the, you know, the failure of the state that we're seeing all around the world. Yeah, I think that's in, entirely um, possible. Um, and I guess we will sort of see um, comparatively how countries kind of perform with their different approaches. But I guess one thing I would kind of sort of say is that it, it's not just about ideology because you've got like a bunch of sort of right-wing states that have other levers that they can kind of pull on. Like Korea, uh, for example, has uh, a really flexible deregulated labour market, for example. Um, you know, one that in this country we would not be comfortable with on, on any That's on true, any but, measure. It has a, but it has a health system with a lot more capacity. Yeah, there. and it's also got a homogenous society and a, and a, and a, and, and a culture where they're more inclined to to accept strict um, restrictions. So um, I yes, I do think that we will be having a, precisely these conversations, but they are there are more variables in this in this mix than than I think on on the surface. If that Can makes I ask sense. A, a quick question because I'm ignorant of these things? Um, this critical juncture that you speak of. Yeah. Um, so is there a a predictable political outcome as far as, as what sort of parties tend to profit from this chaos um, or is just all bets are off now? Uh, can we sort of speculate on who is likely to benefit politically from the chaos? Oh, that's a really good question and one I don't know the answer mm. um, to. Um, so critical junctures are a general term which refer to to any kind of sort of um, shock to a political system that sort of opens up a new kind of policy sort of debate. I mean, there are people who work on populism, um, particularly in the European context, and the rise of populism is, you know, quite closely related to immigration mm. um, issues. In terms of something like this, like a, a, a disaster, you know, and, and somewhat akin to a natural disaster, mm. that that we've we've not seen that for for like really like a hundred years in in democratic polities yep. that we would normally compare with. So, no idea. Any uh, lessons to be learned from nineteen eighteen? Do you think, or has things changed from um, Spanish flu? It seems like we still have problems with federalism and coordination. Yep. So mm. we haven't learned those. Well, lessons. I mean, in the UK, they had the Great Strike that came after mm. that. Look, I, I, I I'm happy. Prepared to put my uh, <laughs> my my forecast on the table. I, I think in the United States is a catastrophe uh, yeah. unfolding at the moment, and if you're president of the United States and a catastrophe happens on your watch, I think there's going to be political costs associated mm -hmm. with it. What I that agree with what you. that means in November, I don't know. We'll just see how that that pans out. I mean, just but just do the basic math. You know, twenty percent of the U.S. population. You know, so we're talking seventy odd million people. Five percent mortality rate, mm -hmm. given the state of the health public health system for many. Uh, Americans, you know, just do the math on that one. We've got millions of Americans, so that's that. That it could be much worse than that. So, so that 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 has certain absolute 
political consequences. Yeah, I would, you would, I would hope. I, I would think so. But 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 keep in mind too. I think people need to keep this in mind to remember back. It's not ancient history to two thousand and eight when we had the global financial crisis. So that at the time, there was always the end of the markets. Now we're going to move to more. Well, it never actually really happened. Mm. <laughs> yeah. There really was no fundamental shift because, because the people who made the key decisions, the power brokers, if you want to call them that, they didn't want that shift to happen. So they made it sure that it didn't happen essentially. Yeah, but at now, the moment, they're elderly with comorbidities well, and they is, might not last the this year. Is, I think this is the no, – well, no, not so much that. I, I think I think what, what happens in a situation like this, although you're – Mortality rates are lower if you have better health care, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is, is that everybody knows they're in it together in some sense. And so there they may be more willingness for those who are richer, who are more well off, maybe, uh, to actually put in the resources and investments into the healthcare system because they know it protects them. Hmm. It's a price that will help them. Not, perhaps they may not think about the poor and vulnerable. So that that's a possibility. And, and, and so I would hope that the other side, of course, uh, the, there's likely to be more protections in the context of uh, crossing borders. I'd imagine the, the idea of uh, free borders is is going to be a, a real problem. Yeah, that's EU. that's a really interesting yeah. point. So you could see you could see a, a sort of very sharp turn to the right in some of those areas, but it's a turn to the left uh, economically, to put it in sort of crude terms. I would say just on the question of of Donald Trump, I think it is abundantly clear, it's always been clear, but it is abundantly clear that this man is nowhere near the pace needed mm. in order to be a president uh, and nowhere near what is needed in order to deal with this complex emergency. And I think that is likely to, very, you know, inevitably in my view, will lead to him uh, being a one-term president. I can't imagine a circumstance where he will survive this because he is utterly incompetent uh, and he is willfully, he has failed to learn on the job even a bit. You know, he is no more prepared to deal with this crisis than he was when he arrived, and he was not prepared to well, deal with it. Well, the other epidemiological, but he was elected. The other epi- well, that's the thing. The other epidemiological feature that f- fills into this is that the people electing him are the people least likely to be medically insured and therefore most likely to suffer during this. So he might find that his electoral base is decimated. Yeah. Well, I think the, the Democrats are already showing. I mean, there, there's been a lot of concern on the American left in the centre of American politics and in, in what you might call the sane side of uh, of politics. Um, there uh, that. Um, you know, Trump was uh, the, the Democrats were sort of tearing each other apart, and that Trump was sort of on track to win a second term. But I think already you can see the Democrats are have now paired their whole rambling field down to these two. It's pretty obvious Biden is going mm. to be the candidate, and I think the choice between. By, I mean, I've never been a particular, uh, you know, enthusiast for Biden. Um, I'm not sure why all these old blokes are, 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 you know, the only choice that the country can throw up. But um, nonetheless, uh, the comparison between Biden and Trump, I think, in these circumstances, there, you would think they would go for someone who actually knows a little bit about what he's doing. And he's thrown in a female VP uh, yeah. as well. But I, I, I think the 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 issue of incumbency in a, in a national disaster that's unfolding in many countries means that as the incumbent you have to deliver, and if you're not mm, seen yes. to deliver, that's a. I'm not talking about right or left here, whether mm. it's Australia, United States, Canada, Germany, whatever. Then if you don't deliver, you you've shown to fail. Then I think there will be real electoral consequences for those who are the incumbents. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think that's true. On the other hand, it's a positive side if you actually deal with it effectively. 
and mm. shown to do it successfully, then I think there's a positive side to them mm. for the income. So it's it's a that that's why I think it gets back to the first point that I that I raised and David made it and Mary as well is this issue we got to act now. Mm. So we actually minimise the impacts and therefore we can all benefit and the leaders who make those decisions can benefit from and get the credit for making those important decisions. Well, the Australian government has done that to some extent, hasn't sure. it? I mean, we, we declared it a pandemic oh, before, before sure. the WHO. And we closed, and, we closed yeah, the entry from some countries yeah. and we did that ahead of many countries. That's that's true. So I'm not, it's, not all, it's not all a negative. But, but the point about it is every 24 hours or every 36 hours, we've got to be looking yeah. at this boom, boom. Have we made the right call? What are the experts telling us? Is this, is this the right advice that's the, at this point in time? What could we learn from Italy, France, Spain or whatever? I wouldn't be at all surprised if there's already a suite of measures that are there and they're re- releasing them on the basis of the political palatability. Um, I think they're moving the population slowly. David, uh, do you think – I mean you're an infectious diseases expert as well. Do you well, think that um, – uh, any considerations been given to notwithstanding what you yeah. said about the immunity question we don't know whether people can get this infection more than once the assumption going in i suppose was that wasn't the case but yeah. there have been a couple of examples where which which raise questions about that but would there be any consideration going on explosive though it might be uh to exposing critical health workers to the bug uh before oh, you get to the peak in jest people have been talking about it but we just don't know uh enough about who is going to uh do well and not do well um i'm just under the cutoff for the people who do less well um but there are plenty of very senior um, uh, folk in medical uh, hierarchy who would probably not do well at all. Mm. And so you could, if you're not clever about things, clean out your entire wisdom cadre of medicine if you try to do something as silly as that. So I don't think that that's being given any sort of um, serious consideration by the medical profession. And we don't hear much about what's happening at north of the 38th parallel, do we, in um, in uh, Korea? Mm. We don't hear much of uh, – that is in the DPRK, as yep. it's uh, laughingly called. And we don't uh, – Nor Russia. Much, nor hear much about what's happening in Russia. Yep. Uh, this is uh, a concern. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it depends again on what degree of authoritarian intervention is being uh, implemented. You can just assume, I suppose, that in North Korea that there will be huge camps of people who are infected and isolated until st- such time as they're not. Still, they started uh, off with it, closed borders it, it, at least. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, it's it's really not that clear. Uh, what's going on in Russia? I completely agree, and and that has that's important for us to know. This is a pandemic, and we do need to know that. So mm. it would be sensible for our counterparts in um, in Russia to be releasing and discussing these information. We know that that's not likely. Can I just finish by making the point uh, to people listening that uh, you know the, the, you do hear a bit of bravado from particularly younger people saying, "I heard I was walking along in the press gallery uh, just a couple of hours ago, and I walked past a bureau, and I heard." One reporter saying to another one, perhaps it was half in jest, but he was saying, I think we should all just expose ourselves to mm. it. Um, this idea that uh, if you're young and fit and healthy, it's only going to be a mild illness, it's probably right for many people. Mm. But everyone has families, everyone has contact with someone who's in one of those vulnerable categories by age or comorbidity, underlying health uh, uh, challenges or whatever. And of course, there's the unpredictability factor yeah. anyway. We don't absolutely know that all people who are young and fit will will do well. Um, so it's, it, it's irresponsible, I think, to be talking about 
being able to carry it. Uh, I heard a, an NRL player say this morning, the players aren't concerned about getting it, but they all have families. And I yeah. think it was a really good point to make. We're mm. all part of the community and we all need to be uh, aware that even if we don't end up with symptoms, we could pass it on to someone else for whom it is fatal. Yep. And that We're is in a, it together. Yeah, we are in it together. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I think we need to. Do you think the government should really just be saying something as blunt as we're going to have to shut down this economy, put it into suspension for a period of time? I, I think they should have said that it was a possibility, um, and and actually had a staged um, management of of messages and told people how to to get information. I just I just sort of find it kind of baffling that we only got a public health campaign about washing your hands and mm. sneezing into your elbow, cover your hands, cover your sneezes, people, cover your coughs with your elbow. Um, Not the one you shake hands with. But yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, yesterday, I, I just find this we've – known, we've known about this, we've known how deadly it is for, for more than a month. Like mm. why, why haven't we had I a public absolutely health agree. campaign? Look, we have I mixed messages. The Prime Minister gives a televised address on Thursday evening talks about the the package that's put out. Yes, okay, but then they're you know, going to the footy. Mm. On Saturday, mm. Sunday, we get the announcement that, of course, uh, anyone coming into Australia from this point on is going to be in, in self-isolation. I mean, that sort of comes out of the blue for most people. You look at the Smart Travelers website. I mean, the point about it is if you were – we were talking about the China and the Chinese mm. and their decision. They were the first up. Okay, and so maybe there were mistakes made, but the point is they had to learn those mistakes themselves. Yeah, it's okay? a good point. We don't Here have to Australia, relearn them. We yeah. don't have to relearn them. We just have to look in the cameras to see <laughs> and uh, to see what's going on in Europe right now, mm. the consequences of not doing social distancing. And we can look at the comparison to Singapore. Yeah. Okay, Singapore implemented this a month ago in all sorts of ways. And so, so I mean, that to me is just a no-brainer. If a precautionary approach is to do something now and obviously message it, but this mismessage, I'm not going to be tested, uh, go to the footy, or even a week ago, this is a week ago, they were bringing in people, 150 people from Ferrari in northern yeah. Italy. Yeah. Okay, give me a break. The intervention that dare not speak its name at the moment is school closure. Yeah. Um, and if you want to bring a country to its knees, that, that's what's going to do it. Um, if you want to close the economy, close it to all of the double-income families who are trying to meet the mortgages on their investment properties. Um, and there, there is debate about this, and there are countries doing that. My own country has done it. So my, my in Ireland and in France, they're closing schools, and we need to have they're not, a. They're not even. Someone told me they're not even going to church in Ireland. Oh, they're, they're talking about closing bars, for God's sake, man. Yeah. Never mind church, bars. Yeah. Yeah. No, don't I think don't even start bars. with me. Don't even start with and me. There's been a run on Guinness, I understand. That's quite right too. But it, so the French are talking about closing bars and restaurants. Yeah. So these are enormous sacrifices that are mm. being made. And I think there at least I, has I to be – they have, but tobacco shops remain open. <laughs> we at least have to have oh, a very brilliant. transparent discussion. Uh, in Australia about why it's okay to stop 500 people getting together, but it's not okay, uh, or it, sorry, it's, it's okay to stop this sort of festival gathering type stuff, but it, it's not going to affect schools in any meaningful way. Yeah. I think that has to be very transparent. Yes, I agree. Well, look, we've, uh, we've certainly covered a lot of ground here today. It's been terrific doing so. Uh, this is a galloping crisis. I noticed, I mean, even um, last week, for example, when we did this recording, there was, I think the number was 100, we just tipped over. Mm. 
we've now tipped over sort of 300, I think. 319 today. 319. So it, it is a, a galloping situation and uh, government, as, as Quendon makes the point, needs to be on it on, on, a, on a very much a daily basis. So um, uh, we'll keep trying to do our job and everyone else needs to stay informed and we'll look forward to talking to you again. Thank you to Quentin Graft and David Caldercott, of course, Maria Tafaga, as always. I'm Mark Kenny, and goodbye for now. We'll talk to you again next week. Wash your hands. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All the best. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.